One of the saddest days in my adult life, it was, uh, was going to be a real happy day. It was the day I decided I was going to give a blowout birthday to my son. And I forget what age it was. Um, do you remember, honey, six, seven? They were, it was a little guy. He was my firstborn, so I still had a lot of energy. And I was like, I am going to give this guy the best birthday ever. From the time he wakes up in the morning to the, to the day, to the night, to the time he goes to sleep at night, it's just going to be nonstop blessing. And I planned this very elaborate day for him. This is going to be his birthday. It's going to be this day of joy. So when he got up, the first thing was like his favorite food. Then he was going to this puppet show. Then he was going to go to these other things that he really enjoyed. Then his favorite restaurant. And then he's going to ride a horse. It was going to be great. So you say, why was it so sad a day? Because as the day went on, what I noticed is that my, my son's attitude was not getting better. Like, I thought this would be a day of great joy and gratitude and gratitude upon gratitude. But what I saw is as, as the gifts kept piling up, the attention started to move from the giver to the gift. And what was the next gift? And what was, what was going to happen? And some of your parents are... Experienced parents are shaking your head already. You're nodding your head. Um, maybe you've experienced something like this. Uh, because I was like, oh, you know, I want, him to be, uh, I want him to be happy. But he actually wasn't getting happier uh, during the day. I was like, what's the next, what's the, what's the next gift? So you, you may have kind of learned this yourself as parents around Christmas time, right? You ever start to wonder as a parent, can there be too many Christmas presents? For the child to be happy, for the child to be content. You know, Amy Decision, the writer, she, uh, also known as the frugal zealot, you might know her, she once made a chart. She said she made a table, and the, heart, the vertical axis was number of presents, and the horizontal axis was her children's contentment. And she, graphed, she actually graphed this. Like, the, as the number of presents went up, how did the children's contentment go? And she had this curve because <laughs> she, was, she was looking for the optimum point because after a certain point, contentment didn't go up. It started going down again. She wanted to find what was the optimal point of presence for kids. I think, I, I forgot what the number was. I think it was like 3.4 or something, something like that. But that was sad. That was sad for me. But you know what? made the day really sad was the moment that I realized this, this doesn't just happen with kids. So we're reading in the book of Samuel, and we're coming this morning to read this morning about a very happy day. This is the day finally... Finally, when David is crowned king, after all of 1 Samuel, this, this constant waiting for, for this to come to pass, finally, we're going to be reading about David actually becoming king and Israel recognizing who he is. So we're going to be reading 2 Samuel 5 and 2 Samuel 8. And you'll see as we, um, Josh is going to start to read us for Israel is finally saying in the first few verses there, finally saying what's true about David. He is their champion. He is the one who goes out before them and comes in uh, before them. He is, he is the shepherd. He is their shepherd. He's the anointed one. 
the true anointed one. Finally, after all this time, this day is coming and it happens and we get to read about it, which is nice. And after um, part of this is, is that in, in the next few verses, you'll see David takes the city that cannot be taken. In verses six through nine of that first chapter, chapter five, that we're gonna read, you'll see that, that there's a city that just cannot be taken. David takes it. It's the city of Jerusalem and he moves his capital from Hebron up to Jerusalem, which is central um, Benjamin Plateau. And it, it's the time, it's, it's a geographical point that's being made, that, that David is now king, not just of the tribes of Judah, not, not just of the southern people, but of the, all of the tribes together. He's finally king over all the tribes. It's a glorious, happy day. And what we're going to be doing is reading two kind of summary passages on either side of the, of the chapter, chapter 7, where God makes the covenant that he makes with David. And these are kind of summary, summary passages of David's victories. We're just going to, you know, enjoy them uh, because the things that he does, and I'm going to try to bring us into them, are, are really nothing short of miraculous. The victories that David gets, the blessing that God gives him. Let's stand and listen as we hear from 2 Samuel 5 and 8. Josh. Okay, 2 Samuel 5. <clears throat> then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and made... And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here. But the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now chapter 8. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Berathai 
Cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. And these also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. This is the word of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Please be seated. Well read, Josh. Well read. So this is the... This is the project from the beginning of the Bible. This is what the people of, of people were looking for. This is what God was promising. He would establish his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven would come to earth. It would be lifted up before all people, and they would be able to come to God through this kingdom. And this was the promise. Now it was finally taking place. That, that had, the promises that had made way back from the book of Genesis, from the beginning of the Bible. It was finally happening. This is it. We'd have arrived. <laughs> and uh, what I'm showing you here is um, a map that's put out and used by the marvelous Jerusalem University College, where I studied when I was in Israel. And uh, they do a great job of sort of bringing you uh, into the land. And I just wanted to show you this map to just give you an idea. These are not just names on a page. That we're reading. These are actual places and, and peoples where God was expanding his kingdom through David. And just to orient yourself here, this is the, this is the Mediterranean Sea uh, over here. I'm going to try and shake this so you can see it. And then over here, uh, what we have is the, the Sea of Gennesaret or um, the Sea of Galilee. And flowing down from that, is the Jordan River in the Jordan River Valley, and down here is the Dead Sea. The big body of water is the Dead Sea. So what we, you, you probably recognize, this, this is the, the general um, region of Israel. Okay? And what's wonderful here is, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go through nine of victories here that David is having uh, so that we can see but before I do that, I, want, I just want to kind of point out, um, you can see, yeah. Uh, if this is Israel here, then what's down to the west and south over here? You know, right? Egypt, okay? Great superpower of Egypt. And if you go up here, over here is a big 
desert, the Arabian desert. But over here, if you go around this crescent, to over here, what do we have? Mesopotamia, Babylonia, right? And then Assyria, right? So big superpower over here. You've got these big empires. And then up north, you have the Aravad and the Hittites and the you know, places in Turkey. Then down south to the east, over here, you have Arabia. And so what I've drawn here in purple, these lines, are international trade routes. Because if you were in one of these empires and you wanted to trade with the other people in the other empire, you would have to go through the land of Israel. That's why they call it the land between. And you would have to take one of these highways. In fact, they had names. This one going along the coast here is called the Coastal Highway. And here in the Transjordan, over here um, on the eastern, more western side is what they call the King's Highway. And here, the one close to the desert is called the Desert Highway. These are actual ancient Near Eastern trade routes. And you would, you would travel on these like these were the highways. And it went through the land of Israel. And that is why Israel is such an important region in the center. If you were going and you wanted to trade from one to the other, from up here to down here, you have to take one of these um, highways, these international trade routes. So what does it mean when it says David, verse 10, got greater and greater? Well, if I could zoom us in here and start out, I've numbered these. First thing, as I mentioned, is he took his capital from Hebron down here and moved it up to Jerusalem, out of the sort of mountainous region of Judah, up into this central area, much more accessible to the highways and byways in Jerusalem, in that city that, that couldn't be taken. That was really a first great victory here in this spree. The next thing, number two, we go over here, is that David begins to push out the Philistines. Okay, That's kind of related to us, what's going on in, in chapter 5. Um, he goes over to Gezer, okay, which is moving the Philistines out, but he's also getting getting these highways. And related to that, the third victory is that he actually comes down here and takes over Gath, which is one of the great Philistine powers, maybe the greatest uh, kind of power center of the Philistines. He takes Gath. It's amazing uh, what uh, he's able to do because God is with him, right? This is what God does for a king who's after God's own heart. Then he goes east, to Moab. So he goes around the Dead Sea and down here, as described in chapter 8, and he takes Moab, which is on the western, uh, eastern side of the Dead Sea here. So that's like his fourth great victory. And then, number five, he goes north. He goes way up to the Bashan here, and he takes uh, the region up here, and Helam, you know, the uh, the capital there. So he's going north. Then he goes south. Bring it up again. He goes around the bottom of the Dead Sea and goes underneath Moab and takes Edom, which is down here. And he establishes all of these garrisons, the text tells us, in Edom. You see, what also is happening is he's taking control here over these Transjordan trade routes. 
right? Then seventh is he goes right across and takes the Ammonites over here on the, on the other side of the Jordan as well. And then he takes the capital city of the Ammonites, which is Rabbah. And <clears throat> you can see why it's a capital, right? Because it's right there where the, there the King's Highway and the Desert Highway meet, and there's a juncture there, as you can imagine, very important junction. There, David takes control of it. And then, I'll add one more here that's important, is he goes over to the coast, number nine, he takes Joppa, described in 2 Samuel 21. And that's really important, friends, because Israel doesn't really have, like, a harbor. There's no real good natural harbor in, along the Israel coast. Never really had one. But Joppa was sort of one. And so that's where you would take off from. And you can see this, and I've drawn these, drawn these pretty carefully, these uh, routes. You can see this is where things get, went out and came into the land from the sea. So... This is what David was doing. Basically, doubled the size of the territory of Israel. That's what, that's what his victories accomplished. But more importantly than that, he had these international trade routes under his control. You ever wonder why Solomon was so rich? It was because of what David did right here. It's because he had the control of the trade. And so all the empires going through here, they had to, they had to go through David's territory and get taxed and, and have the trade there uh, that they were doing as well. Uh, incredible. So victory wherever he went, when, when the text says that, they're really saying something that, that's uh, true. It didn't seem like anyone could withstand David at this point. And even some of these details of the text, like verses 11, verse 12, you say, why did they bring in the king of Tyre? Like, what does he have to do? Well, the king of Tyre was way up here, you go up the coast to Tyre and Sidon. And <clears throat> way up here, he was sending things and gifts to David. Why? What does that tell us? That David was now an international player on the scene. Very powerful. And these other wealth from other nations, uh, Berathai is mentioned there in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 8. That's the modern-day Beraton. We can identify that. That's 30 miles north of Damascus. Damascus is... Uh, right up here, okay? This is Damascus area up here. So north of that, David is getting uh, tax and trade from. So, you know, it's the Lord saying, sit here. <laughs> sit here while I make your enemies your footstool. Rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves freely. And friends, there are even indications in these texts in verses 9 through 10 that, that it wasn't just that the nations were bowing before David, it seems that they were starting to bow before Yahweh. And where do we see that? This is the kingdom project. We see it in <clears throat> verses 9 through 10. You notice they bring in King Toy, whose capital, Hamath, is, that's about 120 miles north of Damascus. Okay, so way up there, this kingdom is, is sending his son with tribute to David. But the name of the son here is uh, listed as, you see that in verse 10, Joram, Joram. And Peter Lightheart, a great commentator, he points out that this incident is also captured in the book of Chronicles. 
And you go and read in 1 Chronicles 18, you'll see that this king, same king here, but the name of his son in Chronicles is Hadoram. So we have Hadoram in Chronicles. It seems like the king has changed the name of his son, which we're getting here in verse 10 as Joram. Why is that important? Well, Hadoram is an ordinary name that we would expect from a foreign kingdom. But Joram is means Yah or Yahweh is exalted. So Lighthart is pointing out that it seems that the king has renamed his son. Yahweh is exalted. In other words, indication here that the nation is, is converting through the king. So this is, this is, it's happening. The wonder of what has been promised, God's kingdom on earth, the kingdom of heaven on earth, it's happening. Victory, victory, victory. It's a happy day. But, but there are some troubling details. Maybe you noticed as, jo- as Josh was reading to us. There are some bothersome things about these two summary victory passages. And, you know, you can tell they're, they're summary passages, right? Because uh, there are certain times where the narrator steps back. Like in chapter 5, the first, first chapter, verse 12, it says, David knew, right, that God established him and was exalting his kingdom. And chapter 8, verse 14, he had victory wherever he went. You see the, you see the narrator stepping back. So these are summary chapters, that, summary passages that were being given. And at the end of each of these passages that I quoted, we have something that's a little troubling. Like if you look at chapter 5, verse 13, end of what I'm quoting in chapter 5, David has all these wonderful things. And then it says, and David took on more concubines and wives. And they're describing how the story goes. David, after the entire debacle with Michal, and she was actually given now to another man. It was her. She had another husband. So David had lost her. David gives to, God gives to David Abigail, uh, this wonderful wife. And then David takes on, in addition, Ahinoam. And after that, he again causes more difficulty and, and mess with Michal. So David is starting to accumulate uh, more wives. And this is where people, kind of reading this text, they uh, stop and say, you know, this is why I don't support the Bible. This is why I don't like religion, you know, because the Bible is so misogynistic, right? It's so patriarchal. In in fact, you get this text where David is taking all of these uh, wives and concubines, and the narrator doesn't show any disapproval. Well, if you've heard that, because actually I just heard this recently. I was just reading something recently where, uh, where an author was saying this, a womanist author was saying, it just, there's no disapproval shown in the text. It, it seems to be supporting this. I'd just like to, to bring up a subtlety. This is, this is a subtle point. You might miss it, but I don't think the original audience would miss it. And that is when, when it gets to this phrase, the actual phrase he uses is concubines and wives. You see that in verse 13, concubines and wives. And that's a that would be a little bit jarring if you're kind of familiar with the usual term. Because you can look in other places, your Kings and Chronicles, the book of Daniel. When this phrase is used, it's wives and concubines. So 
It's always wives and concubines, wives and concubines. So when you get to this point and you, and you get a little bit of this flip where, where the author flips it, he says, and he took on more concubines and wives. That would, that would jar your ear a little bit to take notice. And what the author, I would say, is doing is telling us, jarring us a little, his audience, so that we would take notes, something here is awry. But if you miss that, or if you say, well, that's a little bit too subtle, you could just go and note where this author quotes uh, or cites Moses and how this is coming out of the law of Moses. And this is what David is doing here is a direct contradiction of what is said in Deuteronomy 17, where God specifically says, don't do this when you're a king, don't multiply wives. Direct contradiction of that and the earlier covenant of marriage in Genesis. So what we have here is direct contradiction of what the author has acknowledged is their source. But even if you miss that, (laughs) all you have to do is read the rest of the story. All you have to do is read the rest of the account, friends. And what you'll find is that what what we see exactly here in this passage are the seeds of David's downfall. This is what actually brings his administration down. Because, again, after Abigail, he takes on Ahinoam. And Ahinoam is the mother of David's firstborn, Amnon. Now, if that name, Amnon, isn't familiar to you, let me spell it out for you. (laughs) T-R-O-U-B-L-E. This is the man who actually brings, uh, brings doom, really, to David's administration. So the, the author, in, in laying out this account, within just a few years, he shows how what David is doing here is actually bringing his downfall. This is the downfall of David's administration, just within a few years. It will cripple the kingdom, what he's doing right here. Bothersome detail number two is in the other summary chapter, in chapter eight, right? We read that to the end, and there are all these wonderful things going on, right? It's all these victories. It's such a happy day, right? In verses 11 through 12, he gets all this wealth, and David dedicates his wealth, a wonderful thing that he does. It's great. Verse 15, he administers his justice, a kingdom on the earth that's going to administer justice. It's fantastic. Praise the Lord. Verses 16 through 17, he he sets up this administration, and you look at the great people that he puts in charge. There's Joab and Jehoshaphat and Joshalson. (laughs) You notice that in verse 16, Joshalson? Okay, well, maybe it doesn't say exactly that, but it's a similarly great decision for stability and order in the administration. He has this great administration. He has the right people in the right places. It's wonderful. And then, oh, and by the way, end of verse 18. And David made his sons his priests. Did you catch that? Did that go by? Did, did that bother you as it went like, wait a second, I'm, you know, I'm not the original audience here, but hey, I thought... Uh, You're not supposed to be a priest if you're not of the tribe of Levi, right? If you're not of the sons of Aaron appointed especially uh, by the Lord, you're not supposed to be priests. Well, 
That's the point. <laughs> Another slight bothersome detail. And, you know, it just goes right by there so that some people say, some, a number of commentators will say, well, you know, he, it doesn't really mean priest, priest. It probably means something like David's personal ministers, like in the court, like David had some kind of personal religious kind of ministers, like that kind of priest. And uh, that's what many commentators would like to say. But you know what? The problem with that view is that verse 18 there uses the exact same word as in verse 17 for the priest, priest, the real priest, Zadok the priest, exact same word. It's the, ka, the Kohanim, right? Kohanim, from which we get the last name Cohen, right? If you ever meet someone and their last name is Cohen, it means they are descended from the great ancient priesthood of Israel because that's the word for priests. Cohen means priests. So here it's a Kohanim, same as in verse 17, the actual Kohanim, and what is going on in verse 18. David was making his son priest. Why is that significant, friends? Because this, again, according to this author, is the second reason for David's downfall. That what we see here are the seeds of the, the very two things that are going to bring this administration down. The very seeds of his doom. One, taking other women outside the marriage covenant. And two, favoring his sons, over-favoring his sons. These are the two things that you go on in this account that are spelling doom for this administration. Crippling the kingdom, as I said. The very two things. So even in the midst of these great victories, great blessing after blessing, we see the moral cracks begin to show. We start to see that in the midst of the blessing, even, dare I say it, because of the blessing, we see David's starting to fail. Now, this is a very important moment in the sermon. Because if you're coming along with me, you, you could be saying to yourself, at this point, you could, you could react and you could say, yeah, yeah, I see what he's doing. I see this. I get the message. And you know what? I could tell David a thing or two. Because I can see it. This is easy. All I have to do is, if I could just grab David by the neck, you know, and shake him a little... <laughs> I could tell him, don't do this. This is easy. You know, just don't multiply these wives. You know, just don't overfavor your sons. Just don't do that. The consequences are crazy. The consequences are going to be so bad for yourself, for the kingdom. I mean, it's easy for me to see. Well, yes, friends, you know what? You could tell David a thing or two because sin is always obvious in someone else. Because the repercussions for doing things that go against what God wants, moral failings, and what happens because of them, they're always evident, except our own. Instead, this point, moment in the sermon, what I'd ask you to do is instead to ask our hearts, where has my heart wandered after other lovers besides God in the midst of God's blessing? And where am I favoring my own over what is holy? Can we ask that of our hearts, friends? Because sadly, tragically, this is the way of the human heart. 
This is the way that it goes. I wish, I wish it were not. But very likely, very often, the more blessed, the more breaking bad. And in fact, the more that God blesses us, it exposes our moral weakness. Very often the case. It's crazy. It's crazy, really. The more blessed we are, the more potential that there is for sin. And I see this in myself, and I, uh, we realize this and weep. It's just like my son's birthday. If you really realize this, it, it, shouldn't, it, should, it should make you sad because you, you ask, how can God bless me when the blessings don't make me better? You know, I was once, uh, just actually recently, talking to a friend who um, was telling me about the early years of his marriage. And I really had a lot, a great deal of respect for this guy, just the way that he and his, his wife and his family are living their lives. And he was tell, talking to me, and he said, you know, when we were first married, we made a decision right off the bat. We, we were kind of struggling financially. We didn't, weren't sure that we had enough. But we said, we're going to do this right and so we are going to give 10% of everything that comes in to the Lord. We're going to tithe, and we're going to do that consistently, no matter what. First thing, first fruits, first thing that comes off the top, we're going to give to the Lord 10%. And said, so we are going to do that. And they did. And for 10 to 12 years, they are faithful givers. And I'm, I mean, they didn't just give. They enjoyed giving. They did it the way the Bible's supposed to. It was just obliged to do it. They actually enjoyed giving. In fact, they had a separate fund that they set up for additional needs that would come up. They had additional money they would give, and they had needs. And you know what happened? They prospered. <laughs> they, they really prospered. They prospered to the point where this guy was in a position much younger than you would expect to retire. That's how, that's how, because that's often how it works. You know, I wouldn't kind of make a guarantee because God is writing all different stories for us. But generally, this is how it goes. You, you honor God. You are generous. This is what happens. You prosper. And they did. They, they just prospered in a great deal. And, and then he was explaining to me why he was telling me this story of what happened next. He said, as that happened, we were able to do more with our money. We made more and more financial commitments and good stuff, you know, things for their house and so forth. But then he got to the point where, where our commitments got so great that we stopped giving. We sort of, giving started to taper off. And he was explaining it to me. He was experiencing a great deal of conviction about this, that, that you know, we had this wonderful period early in his marriage and and the giving had started to taper off at this time. He was feeling really convicted about that. Well, what happened there, friends? It's too many Christmas presents. Too many Christmas presents, that's all. Some of you are wondering, why isn't God prospering me more? Why don't I have more that, that I think that I need? A lot of times, sadly, the answer is he knows our hearts better than we do. And so he cares about us in what he gives and what he withholds. Because a blessing sometimes exposes moral cracks, just like with David. 
Well, there is something that actually should upset you about this passage. I think if you go and uh, next time you go to college and you have a professor say to you, the Bible promotes polygamy, just say, you know, why don't you go back and learn how to read? Or maybe don't say it like that. But it's very clear from this narrator that these, this, is not David, this is not David's strong point. This is not when David is doing well, when he's doing these things. But here's, here's the thing that you should get upset about. And this, really, when you realize it, should bring our hands to our mouth in awe. David knows this. God knows this about David. Not David knows this. God knows this about David. And he still blesses him with victory. You notice this? When David is doing these things, when he's multiplying wives, when he is favoring his sons and making them priests, God is not looking the other way. It's not like God doesn't realize that this is going on. But in the midst of this, he still blesses him with these victories, with these nine victories that I went over. He blesses David with victory anyway. He sees the cracks and blesses him anyway. Now, this is not what I would do if I were in charge. Okay, if I was God, I would say, all right, stop the car. No, stop the car. We are not going any further here. We are, I don't care if we're on vacation. I don't care if it's a kingdom project. We are not moving forward until this is settled, until you get this straight, David, about this wife thing, about this son thing. We're not going any further until this is settled. That's the way, that's the way I would handle it. Apparently not God. Apparently not. Instead, what we see him, he makes David's successes stand out in the midst of this, you, you really can't avoid the implication of this text if God is all-knowing, and he is. And I wish those who misread the Bible could see this. But this might make you upset. You're like, how could God do this? How could God turn his back on what's going on with David? This is the, isn't he supposed to care about holiness? Isn't he supposed to be all about Righteousness and holiness, is he too, too great and holy to look upon sin? How could he allow this to go on? And the answer, friends, is what happens between these two passages. Remember these two summary passages, chapter 5 and chapter 8? They're on either side of chapter 7. What happens between these two passages? David brings the ark to Jerusalem and God makes a covenant with him. It is the covenant of eternal dynasty. It is the covenant where he promises there is a son of David. There is one to come who will be on the throne forever. There's one who will be able to occupy the throne forever. He will not, through his own sinfulness, be cast off the throne. He won't bring his administration to a grinding halt. This son of David, I promise you, God promises on himself that he will do this. And that is why God could look at what was going on and still give David victory. Because he looked ahead to the one to come 
to the true anointed one as he makes his covenant in chapter 7. And he allows that to allow him to bless David. And then, friends, that is the good news for us today. He goes, just as God was doing that beforehand for David, he does it for us today. He looks at the way that we are. He sees the moral cracks, and he decides to bless us anyway. He decides to move forward with us. He decides because he wants our lives to work out. He goes ahead anyway to do this. Our failure to be God's royalty, as we are called to, it runs deep. But God is gracious to bless us even so. And that, friends, is amazing. Realize this amazing grace of God and what it took for that to happen. What it took is before us now at this table. And so let us come before this table with awe. Please stand. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Almighty God, we give you thanks, we give you praise, because of all, you know us well. You know us so well. And you, you are right in what you give, and you are right in what you are withhold from us. We thank you for your wisdom dealing with us. We thank you, Lord, that you look upon us with grace. Because of that grace, we can live our lives and expect blessing from you, even when we do not deserve it. And for that, Lord, we join our voices with David and his sons and all those who have gone before us in their unending hymn of praise.